Welcome to the 15th Phenotyp Speaker Series. We're once again joined by a panel of exciting guests, where today we'll discuss the topic of whole genome sequencing and how to navigate it in the clinic. The speaker series is brought to you by Phenotips, the world's first genomic health record system, a software and service that makes genetics professionals' workflows easy and intuitive. Phenotips incorporates features such as pedigree drawing, standardized symptom capture using the human phenotype ontology, and insights such as differential diagnosis and gene suggestions. Since electronic health records aren't built for genetics, Phenotips fills the gaps by providing a complete suite for genetic medicine. In light of the pandemic, Phenotips is sponsoring this speaker series. I'm your host, Dr. Pavel Buchkovich. I'm the COO and VP of Scientific and Medical Affairs at Phenotips, and my main focus and passion relates to improving genetics workflows uh, in the clinic. I have Lean Six Sigma certification and a PhD in cancer genetics and molecular pathology from the University of Toronto. My research interests focused on using next generation sequencing technologies for improving therapies for high risk childhood cancers, uh, developing and validating clinical genetic tests, and translational research projects uh, focusing on things such as pediatric stroke, central nervous system vasculitis, and pediatric brain tumors. The dream of precision medicine, or more specifically genomic medicine, is fundamentally based on the relationship between the genome, the variants in the DNA, and the way in which those variations are expressed in the environment, um, in the environment in which we find ourselves. In the context of medicine, this could mean the presence of phenotypes or symptoms of a particular genetic disease. So especially in the rare disease context, it could mean a variance role in determining the efficacy or side effects of a particular medication, such as pharmacogenetics. The methods by which genetic variation is examined in the context of health and disease can change over time. Progress on various technological fronts has provided us with many tools, techniques, and assays uh, to utilize this diagnostic, uh, to utilize it as part of this diagnostic uh, endeavor. Sort of none more revolutionary and broadly applicable uh, as whole genome sequencing. We're still in a lot of ways in the early days of adopting whole genome sequencing in the clinic. And today we'll be discussing the experiences of our three guest panelists, Dr. Olaf Bottomer from Boston Children's, Dr. Ian Kratz from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Dr. Austin Larson from Children's Hospital of Colorado. We'll soon give each of uh, our panelists a chance to introduce themselves. But first, we'll do a little bit of housekeeping around the format of the webinar. We'll start off with about a 15-minute discussion with our guests, followed by a 20-minute question period, where we will be taking questions from you, the audience. You'll be able to submit your questions throughout the discussion in the Zoom's Q&A box, and we'll try to take up as many of those questions as we can in those last 20 minutes. I'll now ask uh, each of you to introduce yourselves and perhaps, you know, beyond your affiliations, uh, you can also let me and the audience know um, where your current focus or research interests lie. Um, maybe Dr. Uh, Bottomer, you can go first. Yeah, thank you, Pablo, and thank you very much for the uh, kind invitation to join this uh, distinguished panel. My name is Olaf Bodamer. I'm a clinical and biochemical geneticist at Boston Children's Hospital and the Associate Chief for uh, Clinical Genetics and Genomics. 
Um, I'm from a scientific standpoint interested uh, in uh, disorders of histone modification, particularly uh, Kabuki syndrome uh, and, and others. Uh, and I'm also interested in the utilization of innovative therapies for rare diseases. But most importantly, one of my um, passions lies with uh, looking into ways to uh, shorten the diagnostic odyssey and most importantly, shorten the time um, to uh, treatment for uh, individuals with rare diseases. Um, so thank you again for having me on this panel. Thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Kratz. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be part of um, this panel as well. So I'm uh, Ian Krantz. I'm a uh, medical geneticist pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, my evolution into this sort of world of genomic medicine really started um, similar to Dr. Bodemer, interested in rare diagnoses and applying new genomic technologies to try to find answers and discover novel genes for those diagnoses. And it quickly became apparent that these, those tools were gonna to have a huge impact on what we do clinically. So uh, we got very involved in, in early on in studying the applications of uh, genome sequencing in the clinical setting. And that um, eventually led to the establishment of the Roberts Individualized Medical Genetics Center here at CHOP uh, now seven years ago, which really um, was set up to help facilitate genomic level testing across the institution um, and across all specialties. Because as we developed these new broad-based tools, it became um, readily apparent that these were going to apply to patients that were beyond what we classically saw in genetics, but applied to almost all patients. Um, and there needed to be a way to help navigate um, both um, educating and consenting patients and um, undertaking the testing, interpreting the results, and returning those resu results um, to the patient. So I've transitioned from a lot of the basic research focus to uh, much more clinical focus. Um, and that's, uh, I guess, where my connection is with this, this panel currently. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Larson? So my name is Austin Larson. I'm a pediatrician, medical geneticist, biochemical geneticist. Um, I have been involved in the implementation of whole genome sequencing here at our institution for about four years. And um, in addition to, um, to that aspect of my practice, um, I participated in a number of trials uh, of uh, therapies for rare diseases. Um, I'm involved in some national um, consortiums for mitochondrial disorders and disorders of glycosylation, um, both of which are commonly diagnosed on whole genome sequencing. Um, and then a couple lenses that I'll mention that I, that I look at this through are that um, I do a, a fair amount of rural outreach, and I'm a, a big believer in the impact of whole genome sequencing as it relates to outreach to um, uh, settings that have fewer medical resources. And um, I'm also the program director for the clinical genetics residency and associate program director for the medical biochemical genetics fellowship. And uh, so I think a lot about how to implement uh, education around using whole genome sequencing for our trainees. Excellent. Well, I'm really excited to jump in to the topics. It seems like we have a very experienced uh, group of panelists today. Um, setting the stage, maybe Dr. Larson, you can kick us off. 
Um, what, in your experience, is the typical patient journey look like from, uh, from referral to that test order? And could you walk us through that process um, and, and tell us a little bit about where, at what point that genetic testing decision uh, is being made? So um, this looks very different. Uh, this is changing a lot uh, in the last couple of years. So I think in the past, the role of genetics was viewed as someone to come in after the fact, after the patient's phenotype has kind of declared itself, after they've become kind of differentiated and they have um, clear uh, aspects of a specific clinical syndrome. And then the role of the, the geneticist was to make a clinical diagnosis and send a targeted genetic test as a confirmatory test for that clinical diagnosis. So that was the old paradigm. And that was that paradigm really led to this phenomenon that we've all talked about of the diagnostic odyssey, which is that the patient has to progress further and further in their illness. They have to get more and more expert input. They have to get more and more um, invasive and expensive phenotyping, whether that's imaging or biochemistry or functional studies. And then at the end of the line, the geneticist can come along and say, this is why all these things have already happened. And that has changed a lot recently for the better, which is that the geneticist can get involved at a much earlier stage in the process um, when the patient uh, has a phenotype that is more undifferentiated. And the importance there of, of an undifferentiated phenotype is that that in some cases means that there's more opportunity for intervention prior to um, kind of irreversible injury having happened. Um, but the consequence of uh, being involved at an undifferentiated state is that it's often impossible to make a clinical diagnosis and we rely on hypothesis-free genetic testing, broad genetic testing to give us the sensitivity to be able to make an accurate diagnosis for a patient with a relatively undifferentiated phenotype. And as geneticists, we much more often are involved at the early stages and the genetic diagnosis then is um, used in really high stakes medical decision making going forward. So it's almost completely flipped in terms of what I see from my colleagues, from them asking us to get involved at the end of the process and explain what happened to now them asking us to get involved at the beginning of the process and help them to, um, to find an accurate diagnosis that will assist with medical decision making going forward. Hmm. Dr. Krantz, is that your experience as well? And, and how much would you say, I guess, the, the increased use of whole genome sequencing has sort of led to that flip? Yeah, I think that's kind of been the, the trend, definitely. And it's gone from, you know, when you think about exome and genome sequencing, it, it was kind of the big guns that were at the end of a usually a long process um, to now becoming a frontline test more and more. And the issues we face at our institution are more that many specialists, people who you know um, practice in cardiology and rheumatology and gastroenterology and immunology want to use these tests. Um, and the reason for setting up um, a program um, like we have here at CHOP um, to help facilitate that was really to help navigate 
that process because it's complex and um, it's burdensome financially sometimes for the families or the institution. Um, and then often when test results come back, um, the people who ordered them, if they don't have the expertise, don't really understand them and there's a lot of misinformation. So, um, you know, patients come from all um, different aspects now, not <coughs> classically through genetics, but they're coming from different specialists. They're, you know, inpatient issues that are different from outpatient issues and the pathway that they take. But um, I think this has been really a revolution for our trainees. We sort of say that they're living in the era of genomic medicine now, which is really what this period is gonna be known as, but accomplishing, um, uh, you know, getting the testing and using it in a meaningful way is, is challenging. But, um, but again, I do see us as, um, uh, as, as Dr. Larson said, we're not at the end of the process after someone's seen 30 specialists and someone says, oh, maybe there's a link between all of this, but send them to the genetics. <coughs> at the very front of the process when a child presents with dysmotility or isolated periodic fevers or isolated epilepsy. Um, and it's very exciting because we as geneticists are having to become generalists again. Um, but, you know, it's different between the physicians and um, patients who want the testing and then obtaining the testing is a whole big leap. <laughs> Dr. Bottomer, do you have uh, any comments on that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we see a similar trend to earlier referrals, but on the other hand, we also still see patients who have been seen by multiple specialists and you know, clearly diagnosis was, was significantly delayed in there. It's still a good, good percentage of the patients that come to our clinical practice. Um, I, I would argue that it's still very important that we kind of look back to our roots, the roots of medical genetics, and we think about our talents. And I, I think what's really important, even in the advent of whole genome sequencing, is an in-depth assessment of the patient, of the patient's past medical history, family history. And I cannot really overstate the importance of clinical phenotyping, which should be precise and detailed we should recognize uh, the, the need to uh, state pertinent negative findings and really synthesize that. And, and you know, that's what I convey to our trainees to, to think about differential diagnosis. And while there is a, certainly a case to be made for a large number of patients to undergo exome and genome sequencing, uh, there are still patients who uh, you know, they come to the clinic and you have a clinical diagnosis, obviously, you know, trisomy 21 is the obvious example, Kapuki syndrome. I mean, there are a couple of other genetic syndromes where I still feel comfortable to do a single gene or at least a small gene panel. And then you have another group of patients who come in with a positive biomarker, so metabolic patients, for example, newborn screening recalls, uh, you know, there's a biomarker that actually gives you uh, um, a, a good differential and you know, uh, kind of uh, allows us to do a single gene or a small gene panel. And then you also have a group of patients where there is a single finding, um, you know, retinitis pigmentosa, for example, or cardiomyopathy without any associated clinical features. And in these cases, I still feel comfortable to, to order a gene panel. And then, of course, you have all the other patients, you know, I think, we, we all know, you know, uh, complex neurological phenotypes in association with, with other um, findings. You know, obviously, they, they make a very strong argument 
for whole exon sequencing or whole genome sequencing. The other thing I should also, I want to point out, we see about 5% of cases who have two independent monogenic conditions and they would go undiagnosed if we wouldn't use exome or genome sequencing. Yeah, that's, that's actually really good insights and uh, sort of, I guess, brings me to sort of the next question. Dr. Dr. Larson, perhaps I'll take it and sort of let you take this first. Um, how do you evaluate what should be the first tier genetic test? Sort of what percentage right now um, in your experience is whole genome sequencing and what percentage of those tests, first tier genetic tests should be whole genome sequencing, you know, if everything was uh, sort of set up to its optimal uh, efficiency, reimbursement, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I guess my uh, kind of philosophical approach is the question of, am I more likely to miss a diagnosis by not testing broadly enough or not testing deeply enough? So um, to, to give you an example, we had a, um, what you could consider a false negative whole genome test recently on a child with seizures. And then a targeted seizure panel had enough read depth to call low-level mosaicism for a diagnostic finding. Mm -hmm. um, so whole genome is not always the perfect test. Um, the ability to of the whole genome to go deeper, so to detect things like um, SMA, um, myotonic dystrophy repeats, things like that is improving. So um, you know, kudos to those folks that are working on the analytical side on the chemistry side in terms of um, increasing the sensitivity of whole genome sequencing for a broader and broader variety of mechanisms. Um, but until we get to the point, um, it, you know, until we get to the point where it, it truly encompasses even more mechanisms, um, as Dr. Bodemer and Dr. Krantz made the point, you know, it's, it's critical to bring our medical genetics training to bear on the question of what is the likely mechanism here? And um, so for a patient with a, a very specific and very differentiated phenotype, we may be better off doing a more targeted test, especially if there are atypical mechanisms at play. Um, but for a kind of relatively undifferentiated patient, relatively earlier in their disease course, in my mind, we are more likely to miss a diagnosis by going deep than by going broad. So what, what we're, what the most important thing earlier on and in a more undifferentiated state is that breadth. Um, so I don't know if I have exact answers for you of how often whole genome should be the first tier test. I can tell you that I would like to do it more often than I am now, and the limitations are more um, kind of financial and logistical than they are in an intentional decision to not do whole genome. Mm -hmm. and, and those things will likely evolve over time as well as genome and analysis costs and, 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 and computation decreases uh, over time as it has been quite significantly over the last, uh, even just last few years. Um, Dr. Krantz, in your experience, how much say do you think a patient typically has in sort of the type of genetic test that's being selected? And, and do you see sort of an impact on the patient experience depending on the type of test, whether it is whole genome or a more targeted panel or a single gene test? 
Yeah, well, it's a complicated question because it obviously depends on um, the level of sophistication of the patient and their family and, and the amount of education um, that they're given about the testing options. Um, you know, we, we are big proponents of sort of the right test for the right patient at the right time um, philosophy, uh, even though we have a definite genomics tilt. Um, sometimes it's the complexity of the test. So obviously, you know, panels have advantages, as was mentioned, in terms of maybe quicker turnaround times, um, maybe less expensive. Um, there may be specific quirks about the genes being tested that are better addressed on a panel than on a whole genome. Um, but one of the big issues is all of the data that comes back on a whole exome or genome sequence and secondary findings and incidental findings and um, variants of uncertain significance that sometimes are very distressing to families. Uh, and so the approach really needs to be geared towards the families and their um, understanding of the test and, and what you know, they're able uh, to cope with. So um, we definitely would not do a test um, without a family's approval. Um, for exomes and genomes, for the most part, we do need consent from the families because of issues of secondary and incidental findings. So at least they're being educated. But for many of our other tests, you don't even need to ask permission of the family if it's an inpatient in the ICU and you want to do a cardiomyopathy panel, it just goes in as an order. But I think it is important to discuss with the family what their expectations are. Uh, Dr. Bottomer, what have been your uh, experiences with that? I, I think our experience has been overall positive. You know, families tend to, to follow our, our recommendations for uh, genetic testing. We had very few, if any, families you know, not, not follow our recommendations. Um, it's, it's interesting. We see an association between disease burden, burden in the patient and uh, length of the diagnostic odyssey, and those families tend to ask actually for the more comprehensive genetic testing, exome and, and, and genome testing. Um, some families, you know, have concerns about what um, Dr. Kranz just mentioned about, you know, incidental findings and, and variants of uncertain significance. But they also understand that uh, there is an important advantage to exome and genome because there is an opportunity for reanalysis as time goes by if uh, there are negative findings. And that, that's important to, to many families. It's almost like they have an ongoing test at, at regular intervals. Hmm. Dr. Larson, you also mentioned running an outreach program from your clinic. How does that, how does that uh, sort of, there is, are there differences between, between patients that are actually seen uh, and, and referred to the hospital itself versus the outreach program that you run? Yeah, I, I really think of it as a question of equity of access. Um, to specialty care. And, um, you know, we've, we've already touched on the importance of experience and expertise in this field, but um, that can be a big barrier. The need to either travel to where an expert is or the, you know, the truly expert folks are few and far between, and um, it's hard to get into their clinics. It's hard to be seen by those people. It's also hard to know ahead of time who is the right expert to, to see you and to have that clinical insight that can, you know, make that, uh, you know, make that clinical diagnosis that was missed elsewhere. So I do think of whole genome and whole exome sequencing as kind of a, a safety net 
um, and an equity issue in, in some ways that um, those patients that uh, don't have the ability to travel um, outside of their area um, or who have you know, a year long or two year long wait to get in to see uh, someone in a genetics clinic or, you know, a specialist that, that has the experience to be able to make a difficult clinical diagnosis. Um, I see broad testing as, as being kind of a safety net uh, and identifying a lot of rare diseases um, in people who otherwise would have been missed. So um, that's something that I, that I feel strongly about in terms of uh, access to care and kind of equity of, of people in different geographical areas um being able to to get diagnosed yeah that's a that's a very interesting take on it and i think uh 100 agree about the, the the use of broad testing and at least bringing equity to some of that uh genetic testing access very interesting um so the acmg has recently published guidelines uh, on using exome and genome sequencing as a uh, first tier or second tier test for patients with intellectual disability, developmental delay, uh, or congenital anomalies. What are your thoughts, uh, or what would other indications be um, where first tier testing uh, should be used? Perhaps in the next, <laughs> the next, the next phase. Uh, maybe Dr. Kranz, you can start off. Sure, I'll take a stab at that. I mean, those are pretty. Um... Uh, sort of advanced recommendations that came out because it isn't standard practice for a child with an isolated birth defect necessarily to get um, an exome. It's definitely not always accepted by um, the payers um, to uh, support that approach, but I think it is a, a valid approach. I think there are um, more and more using exomes and genomes as a frontline test it makes more sense as we're able to detect copy number on those tests, as we're able on genomes to detect trinucleotide repeats. Um, there are obviously some mechanisms um, that are, are not detectable that might require focused testing. But I think for almost any indication um, beyond those, uh, I would say a child, a neonate with um, seizures uh, would be an indication uh, for pursuing this type of testing. Um, uh, there's, you know, a whole slew of, um, you know, test recommendations that would fit into this guideline, but may have to be adapted. So I think even in the prenatal setting, um, an exome or a genome could be adapted to look at things that don't cause too much distress. You can do the analysis in a way that, you know, looks at, you know, sort of a subset of genes or a panel or an exome within a genome, and that can be adapted um, depending on the diagnosis, depending on the age of the patient and, and what you're looking for. So there are very few scenarios as cost is coming down, as our um, analytic capabilities are improving, as the uncertainty is decreasing as we do more and more of these tests. Um, there are very few indications where a patient who needs genetic testing likely wouldn't benefit from this type of approach, with the exception of cases like Dr. Bodemer was saying, um, clearly, if you know a specific diagnosis and you can do a targeted test or, you know, you think a child has Prader-Willi syndrome and you want to do a methylation test rather than a DNA sequencing test, you know, there, there are exceptions to that. But I think that this type of um, testing has very broad applications, even beyond what the ACMG are, are um, acknowledging at this point. Mm. 
Dr. Bottomer, would you like to comment on that as well? Yeah, le le let me expand on that. I, I think there's a growing body um, on the utility of whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing uh, in the NICU setting um, using a rapid approach. And um, when you look at, at the data that have been published, I think it's pretty convincing that there is utility uh, that changes management and sometimes redirects care. Uh, there is also growing evidence for utility of uh, first-year exome sequencing and genome sequencing in a critically ill, you know, uh, pediatric intensive care unit setting. And I was always wondering whether we should also start thinking about all our transplant patients. I mean, there is you know, ongoing liver transplant in patients where there is idiopathic liver failure. And uh, we had um, experienced a case, uh, this was a, a newborn with idiopathic liver failure, who then was put on the transplant list, but after doing a rapid whole exome, turned out to have uh, Neiman pick type C, and care was redirected at the time. Another interesting experience in our uh, hospital was a child who was referred from outside for a bone marrow transplant due to um, some idiopathic form of immune deficiency. Uh, again, we did rapid whole exome and identified hereditary aortic aciduria, which is a very treatable condition and actually alleviated the need for, for the bone marrow transplant. So I think these are two examples, but I think we should really expand our, you know, the kind of the, the indications for whole exome and whole genome sequencing and uh, also kind of think about those populations. Dr. Larson? Yeah, I would say a, another kind of spin in addition, I totally agree with the, the prior comments. One other um, take on this is the question of whether the phenotype for which a patient is referred, is that a primary phenotype or a secondary phenotype? And so um, primary care physicians um, who are taking care of children are very attuned to developmental milestones and they're very attuned to atypical growth. And sometimes those things are a primary phenotype. So a patient with atypical development has a, a disorder of the embryological development of the brain. Um, or sometimes that's a secondary phenotype. So a, a patient with atypical development might actually have chronic anemia or you know, something that you just never would have thought of. And um, so I think that that possibility that the, these kind of general indications for referral are actually secondary phenotypes, that's an important argument for, you know, really casting a broad net with your initial diagnostic evaluation. How do you see, um, sort of how do you see whole genome sequencing perhaps getting more traction outside of, uh, outside of the traditional genetic space uh, in the hospital and sort of out to primary care and pediatric uh, developmental, uh, sorry, developmental pediatricians and, and, and others to actually order those tests ahead of time uh, and sort of bring the genetic specialist to analyze those um, once those maybe phenotypes and symptoms and, and, and other things become more indicative of a, of a diagnosis later on. So I think that's going to have to happen, right? There's just not... We, we just don't have the genetic professional workforce to, to be able to implement this as broadly as I think it, it could be. Um, and so it's, it's really, it's on us and it's on the labs that are doing the testing to make this test palatable for other people. Um, 
And so uh, in a couple ways, so for the labs, um, you know, different labs, uh, and th this has been discussed previously, but different labs have different approaches to reporting variance. And some optimize, some labs optimize their test for positive predictive value, and other labs optimize their test for sensitivity at the expense of positive predictive value. And so that higher positive predictive value test is more appropriate for a developmental pediatrician, a primary care pediatrician, that kind of optimization for sensitivity is probably more appropriate for a genetics clinic. Um, and so, you know, there are different approaches to the analysis that can um, make the test more appropriate for different clinical contexts. Hmm. I have a follow-up question for you there, but I think I'll leave it for a little bit later because it might lead us into uh, a little bit of a different topic. Um, Dr. Krauss, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll go back to basics and kind of ask a very uh, maybe uh, interesting question. What is the actual process for ordering the whole genome sequencing? How do you navigate all the associated paperwork, the various parties involved, laboratories, payers, uh, perhaps healthcare system? Um, do you have any advice for our viewers for those who might be at institutions who are you know, maybe just implementing and rolling out whole genome sequencing in their, in their clinics? Sure. Well, let's say ordering genome sequencing is really easy. Getting it reimbursed is the problem and not bankrupting your families or your institutions. Um, and different institutions have different hoops that you have to go through to get the testing order. Um, we deal, um, one of the main focuses of our program here, um, the Individualized Medical Genetic Center, is to sort of centralize that process to navigate through approvals um, and getting the testing um, hopefully performed on, on the families in different ways. So that involves getting pre-authorizations. Um, we, um, you know, there are different pathways for inpatient versus outpatient, but for outpatients, um, we'll never order these tests without getting pre-approval from the payer in advance. And that often requires writing letters of medical necessity, doing peer-to-peers, um, when they're denied to fight for approval. If they're not approved, there are certain companies um, that will do um, exome and genome sequencing and do benefit investigations for families um, to tell them exactly what it would cost out of pocket. And in many cases, um, there might not be any cost to families. You have to be, even when a test gets approved, you have to be cognizant of what co-pays there are depending on the insurance the families have because a test that might cost Twelve or fourteen thousand um, dollars. If there's a two or three thousand dollar copay, that could be insurmountable um, for some families. So it's a it's a huge morass to navigate. Um, it's getting mildly easier with some payers who are starting to recognize these tests as standard of care, starting to recognize that um, doing an exome is more cost effective than doing chromosomes and arrays and um, single genes and panels and um, getting it all done up front, both in terms of maybe diminished costs for the actual testing, but also in terms of finding an answer earlier and instituting a more targeted treatment. So um, it's really quite complicated. And although many clinicians want these tests, many of them aren't comfortable navigating this front end part. So many institutions have set up programs um, that help that navigation. Hmm. Has that has the reimbursement process evolved over the last few years? Has it become simpler or is it still difficult to navigate? 
still, I'll say it's still complicated, although I've developed really fond relationships with a lot of the peer-to-peer -peer reviewers um, who I talk to multiple times a week. Um, we tend to, to talk about our kids and then they tell us, oh, well, it's not approved at the end anyway. So. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is getting slightly better and statements like what came out of the ACMG this year and other studies that are showing these tests to be standard of care give us more tools to argue that and eventually the policies at the payers um, will change and make that easier. Right, we're just hoping it, we get there faster than faster than sooner than later. Uh, Dr. Bottomer, would you like to comment on either of those? <laughs> yeah, that's like a hornet's nest here. Uh, you know, I, I second what, what Dr. Kren said. Uh, I think the key is to centralize the process within an institution. And we started doing that in genetics and genomics and kind of take really baby steps to, to also involve the other specialties. And I think the other key aspect is to partner with one genetic testing laboratory that would, as Dr. Grant stated, would do the benefits investigation and prior authorization would fall on us. But I think I'm still intrigued by how much time and effort it takes to get the, the, and we're not talking about genomes, exomes approved um, and, and the, the patients tested. I think this is time not necessarily well spent because it takes us away from other activities. And I'm not quite sure that the payers truly understand and appreciate how much effort uh, that, that takes. And at the end, I would say in most cases, it actually gets approved. Um, so the question to me and to, to the panel would be, is there an opportunity for the institutions to band together and approach the payers at some point, um, highlighting the needs for, I think, a reform of the of the current, uh, you know, approval process for exome and, of course, genome. In the U.S., it would that be on a state by state level, or could it be done sort of nationally? I think there, there obviously the state by state plays an important role, but I think there could also be a national. Uh, approach. And I'm always wondering whether there is an opportunity for us to, to create a database that would house all the information in a central place with, you know, acknowledging the state to uh, state by state variation and, and really start talking to the payers about streamlining their, their processes. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Larson, any comments on that? Um, I'll just say, you know, one thing that I would love to see to those of you out there who maybe have influence with payers or health systems in terms of how these things are approached is that, you know, when I see a patient that gets referred to cardiology, that referral to the cardiology clinic includes approval of an echocardiogram and an EKG. And getting genetic testing is analogous in terms of a referral to a genetics clinic. It feels to me like that should include approval of the testing that the geneticist will inevitably need to do in order to care for that patient. So I would love to see that. I haven't seen that yet, but um, I think that would be a, a nice approach. Um, Dr. Bottomer, um, in terms of, so when it comes to analysis of the test results from whole genome sequencing or interpreting the, the results that come back, what are the biggest challenges that you think exist for, for the geneticists today? You know, I think the biggest challenge is obviously putting the, the variants of uncertain significance that are fre frequently identified into that clinical context. And it becomes challenging if there is essentially no body of evidence or information available that would allow us to interrogate those variants uh, in, 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 a, in a clinical setting. Um, 
I think there are, there are some, some good resources out there. There's obviously GeneMetra as one example that allows us to, to exchange uh, information. Um, I would kind of, again, on my endless wish list is some uh, common phenotype database that would be linked to that variant um, or that gene even that would allow us at least some, some more in-depth evaluation of uh, ASIC of the variant of uncertain significance. Um, significance. Um, but yeah, that, I think that, that's what I see as the, as the biggest challenge. And then I think the other challenge is to obviously have the family understand that that variant of uncertain significance might not necessarily imply um, a molecular diagnosis and it might actually take some time until further uh, information becomes available right. that allows reinterpretation uh, of that variant. How often do you see uh, VUSs coming back from whole genome sequencing? And what is your approach with discussing that with patients and families? So since we are doing very few whole genomes, um, you know, I, I kind of answer that on based on our exome experience. And I think I would say, um, it's probably every other exome, if not two thirds of all exomes have variants of uncertain significance. Um, I usually spend, um, together with the genetic counselor, quite some time uh, during the pre-test counseling to explain you know, what is a genetic uh, variant, um, what types of genetic variants are there and what criteria are utilized to interpret the variant as either benign pathogenic or uh, uncertain and um, take that information from the pre-test counseling and uh, do the post-test counseling accordingly. And I, I think the families for the most part, they understand the concept, uh, again, depending on education level. Uh, and uh, they, they really appreciate that, you know, genetic counselors in particular take, take their time to, to explain that, that concept. I, I just if I, I want to just make clear um, so everyone understands that VUSs aren't only the domain of exome and genome sequencing, but many of the large scale panels that we run, um, we have more VUSs back than definitive. Yeah, answers. absolutely. So what what steps can be taken to better classify those variants of unknown significance? Sort of what support do uh, you know, the medical practitioners and bioinformaticians and others need to, to enable that classification to be, to be updated more readily. Yeah, well, I think it comes back to what Dr. Bodemar kind of alluded to is having some kind of centralized database. So I think it's clearly been shown as um, the, the volumes of these type of testing go up and we share that data. Um, the better equipped we are to understand variation and understand, you know, what's pathogenic and what's not. Um, so a lot of the sort of uncertainty, which is kind of one of the complexities of doing this level of testing, has definitely improved over time. But I think, um, you know, if we could ideally have sort of a um, national database where all clinical exome and genome sequences get submitted. Um, with good phenotyping, so we understand the clinical picture, it would bring us a, a long way towards um, diminishing, um, or let's say improving our understanding of VUSs and diminishing the anxiety that that causes to clinicians and families. How do you see the role of uh, phenotypic information? Uh, sort of what role do you see phenotypic information playing over the coming years as, as maybe these sorts of databases and systems are, are built up? 
Yeah, I'll just comment briefly. Uh, you know, I think phenotyping is always the Achilles tendon of, of any large genome studies or clinical usage. And I think we need to get away from billing codes for phenotypes and get more into really descriptive detail codes, much like you mentioned for phenotypes using sort of an HPO type um, ontology. Um, but it needs to be harmonized, you know, across institutions um, so that we're all talking in the same language. And those um, phenotyping terms should be targeted towards understanding the genotype and not you know, maximizing billing. Right. Um, I have a question which I'd like to ask all of you, but I'll start with Dr. Larson. So uh, ultimately the judgment call that sort of concludes the medical applicability of a variant, regardless of the report that comes back and the variant classification uh, that comes from the laboratory is the responsibility of the clinician. How difficult is it to deal with some level of unknown and ambiguity when it comes to making that call? Uh, it's pretty difficult. I mean, there's, uh, there's a, um, I think a, a minority of people who can sort of think probabilistically and most people have a pretty binary thought process. So, you know, if you have a, a pathogenic variant, you know, it's clearly uh, black and white. It says pathogenic variant. It's well-documented. But maybe the penetrance of that pathogenic variant is only 5% before age 40. So, you know, you're, you're talking with a, the family of a five-year-old about a 5% penetrance over the next four decades. So, you know, that, that sort of thing is really where the complexity comes in. And I think increasingly that's the value of clinical genetics is, you know, on, on that end of the process, not on the test ordering side, and you talked earlier about maybe that test ordering actually moves and becomes more um, more diffuse. But that interpretation, you know, the ability to um, take that very nuanced point about the, pen the age dependent penetrance and, you know, the environmental factors that are relevant and all those kinds of things and to, to kind of package that in a way that's useful for the family and useful for the other providers caring for a patient. I really think that that's where we're going to increasingly be, that, that's going to be the value that we add going forward as medical geneticists. Dr. Bonner? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think the, the, the biggest challenge, you know, I, I think the example you mentioned with the reduced penetrance, I mean, there are other situations where you have a level of mosaicism and uh, um, changes in expressivity of clinical features in addition to the penetrance. And that on top of uh, the variant being a variant of uncertain significance, I think in, in many situations, it's, it's close to impossible uh, to, to really relay that back to the family in a, in a way that they take, that they see the utility um, um, and that they take their, their, their you know, personal, uh, that they take a um, personal takeaway from it. Uh, I think that's, that's, I mean, I would actually argue it's not only difficult in some situations, in most situations, it's, it's, it's actually impossible. Dr. Krenz, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge educational initiative um, for clinicians because we are very surprised in our program here where we facilitate genetic testing, we evaluate patients, we do consenting, we educate families. 
we assume that the clinicians who requested the testing would be really comfortable returning results. We were surprised to find that they aren't, both because of VUSs and some complex results, but even a pathogenic result is complicated. Why is it pathogenic? Do they understand conservation of an amino acid? Do they understand the terminology? And it's clear that they, they really don't. So I think there's going to have to be a big educational initiative as this testing becomes pretty ubiquitous. Um, uh, I think many of us feel that in the next 10, 20 years, almost everybody will have their genome sequence as part of their routine care. So it's going to behoove clinicians and the educators, uh, you know, medical schools to be training all clinicians to be comfortable in um, not only um, telling families and explaining results to families, but being able to look at the sequence probably and see how it impacts their patients. So it's going to be a big iterative process for the medical profession and clinicians um, before we can really expect families and lay people to, to understand and appreciate some of these subtleties. Mm. Uh, Dr. Bottomer, you know, if we're talking about big picture, how can we, um, how can we integrate genomic data with existing healthcare systems to sort of reach you know, maybe full clinical utility or, or access of that data to, to those uh, primary care physicians or other specialists? Yeah. And sort of what role do you see standards playing in that, in that, uh, in that approach? There, there was a recent paper published in Genetics and Medicine, I believe at the beginning of the year by um, over the, um, about the Penn Chart initiative, uh, initiative at uh, University of Pennsylvania, Penn Medicine. And um, what they demonstrated uh, was a two-staged approach uh, to integrate uh, germline and somatic genetic data into, the, into their EHR, I think, which was based on EPIC, if I remember correctly. And uh, they actually went as far as integrated in a, in a, in a way that they uh, made sure that the genetic test results were no longer uploaded as a PDF. They made sure they were uploaded as, as a real data set. And they highlighted the genetic test results uh, in a centralized location um, accessible to, to providers in that healthcare system uh, to, allow, to allow, I think, electronic uh, searching. Uh, they allowed clinical uh, decision-making, uh, clinical decision support. Um, and they also allowed that to be linked with educational uh, activities that would uh, provide almost an um, automated point of care education. So when a provider would see a patient with a certain genetic test result, treatment recommendation uh, would, would be associated uh, with that. Uh, very important, obviously, for example, for pharmacogenomic variants. Um, I think this is a nice example that kind of underscores the utility of a full integration of uh, genetic data uh, into an EHR system. And obviously coming back to the question of um, uh, standardized vocabulary, vocabulary, obviously that plays an important role uh, that the, the data format have to be standardized, which in addition also lends a utility for research um, because you could retrieve those data we analyze the data. So I think that's a very nice example. It was published, I believe, earlier this year. Dr. Kranz? 
Yeah, no, I don't have too much more to add. I think um, it definitely, these genetic and genomic tests are unique, um, uh, but they're unique in the sense that they're not static tests uh, and they need to be integrated into the EHR to be portable and longitudinal. And I think everything Dr. Bodemer said is correct. And it's actually another point getting back to panels versus exomes and genomes. Um, panels are great on some levels, but the advantage of a exome or a genome or a slice that has an exome or genome base is um, the sort of live nature of that test and ability to go back and requery and to have that information and that data as more uh, knowledge is, is garnered. Um, but I think unless those tests are able to be integrated in a meaningful way into the patient's EHR and be portable, um, wherever that patient is receiving their care and longitudinal in terms of being reevaluated and reassessed. Um, you know, the issues for a five-year-old are very different than for a 65-year-old. Um, and uh, the amount of knowledge that will be gained in those 60 years also is tremendous. So, um, so those are the key, um, key uh, I think, factors that have to, to allow integration of this data for real meaningful care, meaningful genomic care. How, how would you sort of balance the, the sort of like the clinical utility of that data, you know, integrated within these healthcare systems over perhaps, you know, either privacy um, or ethical and legal concerns when it comes to mind, uh, what comes to mind is unlocking maybe other potentials of whole genome sequencing going forward? Uh, maybe Dr. Larson can take that. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a trade-off there, um, which we all we all recognize. Um, you know, I think that there are, you know, of the of the data that's generated by whole genome sequencing or whole exome sequencing, or even a, a genotyping chip, right? There's um, some fraction of that data is actionable, independent of context. So there 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 are variants that we know enough about that they can drive decision support within the EHR. And there are health systems that have, have worked on that. Um, a, lot of, you know, a lot of those variants are relatively common in the population. And I say relatively common in the context of rare disease. Um, but those are pretty on par with other types of health information. Um, it's the more kind of the, the aspects of the genomic data that are kind of um, need to be applied in a bespoke way, that's the province of medical genetics, um, much rarer variants, things that are more, um, more private. And so, you know, there's, there's different types of data there. It's not a monolithic data set in terms of what, what you can get out of that um, genome level data. I think, uh, so I think we'll jump into some of the question or some of the questions that have been coming in uh, from our audience now for the next uh, for the next few minutes. Um, we'll 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 open it up so that everybody can can comment on these. Um, one of the questions is, what about the strategy of panel if panel negative reflex to whole genome sequencing? Uh, I guess, given the information of structural variants and deep entronic regions, I guess those being available in the whole genome sequencing. Uh, maybe Dr. Kranz can start with them. Sure. Well, I think that's sort of been the standard approach um, 
up until more recent um, times. So again, panel testing definitely has a place in terms of eliminating maybe a certain number of VUSs or incidental findings being very focused. So if you look at sort of an epilepsy panel, um, there might be genes on that panel that um, have some quirks to them or pseudogenes that are addressed specifically in a panel that aren't as easily addressed in a whole genome or exome. Um, I think as whole exomes and genomes have gotten better that um, many studies have shown that the exome level testing is equivalent to panel testing and has the advantage of um, more readily being updated with novel genes or um, surprises. So um, there are often cases, especially in young children or infants, where um, they may have hearing loss, but you don't appreciate a broader phenotype where it may not be picked up on a targeted hearing loss panel, but maybe on an exome. And I think as cost has come down, um, it's also been more efficacious to just go to the exome or the genome and rather than doing like an array and a panel and then when everything's negative. But I think it's still sort of standard of care now to do the panels first and then think about exomes or genomes, at least as far as insurance companies are concerned. So it's not a, it's a viable option. I just think that we're rapidly moving towards a exome or genome first approach. Yeah, one, one of the things I'll add is that there are a lot of sponsored panels. So either um, kind of disease advocacy uh, groups or uh, pharmaceutical companies have made the decision to uh, shoulder the financial burden of um, panels for their specific disease or phenotype of interest. And so, you know, there's a lot of panel testing that we can get done without ever having to involve insurance. So uh, retinopathy, you know, there's a sponsored panel, skeletal dysplasia, neuromuscular, uh, hepatopathy, seizures, um, you know, that, that covers a lot of the patients that get referred to us. And um, if we can just take the insurance piece out of the picture, that, that is so big for accessibility and just getting that test done, getting a result in a couple of weeks on that panel, like for the retinopathy panel, you know, that, that panel encompasses a, a very large fraction of the um, potential diagnoses that we could make. Um, so that's a, a really, really reasonable thing to do uh, is to uh, send a panel for that indication. Dr. Bonner, would you like to comment on that or? No, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, it's, um, I think what, what Dr. Cran said, it's kind of, it's slowly but steadily moving in the direction of exome and genome sequencing. And uh, what Dr. Larson said, absolutely. I mean, these panels are readily available and very useful because there's no insurance piece um, attached to them. We do have a sort of a follow-up comment from, from uh, the gentleman who asked that question. So he, he said, yes, but they are isolated panels run on specialized platforms in most cases. And if you, uh, I guess, end up with a negative, you are at a dead end. Any, any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, free is free and you get what you pay for sometimes. So um, yeah, there are limitations um, to some of those approaches and clearly it's not a sustainable model. So they may exist for a few years where you can get those done and they, they may go away. But for families where it's not, economically feasible to do an exome or even a panel, having those options have been a tremendous benefit. Mm -hmm. um, 
Next question also ties in well to some of the discussions we've had, but we didn't touch on this topic. Uh, do you think there is a space for preventative or asymptomatic whole genome sequencing, uh, I guess, or panels? Um, but, but we can answer, answer the whole genome sequencing uh, sort of angle first. Yeah, I think there is, but it's important to consider the risk-benefit ratio. So, you know, if you're caring for a patient with a rapidly progressive neurologic disease, you send a whole genome sequence, the odds of that patient being harmed by you not sending the test are so much higher than the odds of them being harmed by you returning an uncertain result. But the calculus is very different for an asymptomatic person, right? The potential for harm from uh, uncertain results is higher and the potential for benefit is lower. So the, the threshold of certainty uh, above which you would relay information to the patient is very different in the asymptomatic setting versus a symptomatic individual. This, this is like a topic that I think phenotypes can do a whole webinar on separately because it's a very exciting area. Um, what is preventative medicine? And I think that's where we're going. Um, I, I love the idea um, as we get more comfortable with the data and the analysis to have every newborn to have a newborn screen where we're hopefully maintaining health and not just doing it diagnostically for symptoms that are being seen. There, you know, we do it for newborn screening for metabolic conditions um, uh, is a much more simpler way of looking at it. I think genome sequencing in newborns can address a lot of um, medical issues that there are some treatments for prevention in that sense. Um, but also in terms of pharmacogenomics and as patients age, as we start to develop therapies for um, Alzheimer's and different later onset disorders that may have to be started pre-symptomatically, I think there will be an important space for getting this sequence early and instituting preventative medicine. Um, I don't know if we're quite there, quite yet there. As Dr. Larson says, I think there can be a lot more anxiety and harm that can be um, generated from some of this data. Um, and maybe not so many benefits and interventions, but we're getting there. And I think it is going to be an inevitability. Um, so another question we have from the audience is, how do you envision whole genome sequencing uh, being used in, in diagnosis of complex diseases? Uh, Dr. Bottom? I think that's, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, you know, I think we have good understanding of some complex disorders and genetic uh, susceptibility factors, but I think in many ways we're only scratching the surface. Um, I think whole genome sequencing will eventually uh, be of, of benefit um, for those uh, complex disorders where there is a clear understanding of the underlying mechanism and the um, probabilistic value of identifying a variant in a, in a gene that increases the susceptibility. I mean, one example is hemochromatosis, for example, where there are variants that increase the likelihood of manifesting a disease if a pathogenetic variant, for example, is uh, present in trends. So I think the answer would be not, maybe not immediately, but certainly in the future. Yeah, I think it's, to me, it's a little catch-22 situation, which, which gets back to what um, uh, Dr. Bodemer said. If we went to um, 
a more broad scale universal screening using genome sequencing. And we had a centralized database and we had 100 million genomes that we were following longitudinally, we may get more answers for complex traits and understand more of the genetic contribution and potential intervention. So um, uh, the approach might satisfy the end means in the end, but I don't think we're quite there yet again. I think one other thing to think about is at some point, you know, you're, we, we define complex disease and at some point in that spectrum of complex disease, you're in an unusual enough clinical situation that it's worth testing for rare disease, for monogenic disease. So the example might be myocardial infarction. So if that happens in a 60 year old man, the yield of genetic testing is very low. If it happens in a 20 year old woman, the yield of genetic testing is very high. And somewhere along that spectrum is a crossover point where you know, the yield is low enough that it doesn't justify that use of resources in the current environment. But that's gonna change over time. And there are some fraction of people who look for all the world like complex disease that actually have a monogenic disease. And picking those people out is important from a management perspective, but it's just a question of resource utilization. How much, how much resources is it appropriate to use to, to pick out the, that small fraction of people? Some of the complexity similar to what you were just talking about, Larson, on the other side of the coin is people are realizing now as populations get um, sequenced that there are known pathogenic changes in monogenetic disorders like NF1, um, where the patients, the individuals have no symptoms. So you can imagine the amount of anxiety and distress that would cause for a newborn who is getting this as um, you know, a tool to use for preventative medicine and the amount of maybe clinical resources and things that would be used unnecessarily in a patient like you know, with a NF1 mutation that may never manifest symptoms. So. Um, another question to, to the panel, how does whole genome sequencing impact treatment options for patients, I guess, in comparison to other, uh, to other tests? And, and has that changed in the last few years? I mean, based, maybe I can uh, kind of take a stab at this question. I mean, based on our experience with Exome, it certainly has accelerated the, um, the uh, accelerated earlier diagnosis, more timely diagnosis, and allowed patients to be uh, treated more uh, in, a, in a more timely fashion, uh, given the kind of the broader spectrum of diagnosis we cover. And I think that's important uh, to, to keep that in mind uh, when it comes to variant interpretation, that kind of treatment, availability of treatment is, is an important aspect. And I think there, there's still a fairly small number of genetic disorders that are truly uh, treatable in the strictest sense of the word, but I think that number keeps increasing. And I think these are the patients that we, we should not only miss a diagnosis, we certainly shouldn't miss a treatable diagnosis. And I, I would expect that genome would further accelerate that. Um. Dr. Larson, maybe the next question to you. What steps do you think can be taken to improve, I guess, diversity in populations used in genetic studies? And, and how can we make uh, sort of access to genetics, you know, more widely available to 
to people in various groups or even geographies? Yeah, so I think those are two separate questions. Um, you know, on the question of uh, the participants in research studies that contribute to both understanding the genetic um, landscape of phenotypically normal adults and also understanding the genetic landscape and of um, people with a specific phenotype, we, we have already established that there is um, significant benefit from increasing the diversity of populations that are um, that have access to be participants in those types of studies. So um, that was touched on really nicely in the, the suite of papers from the, the NOMAD group um, last year. And, and just in terms of how much benefit there would be per additional individual added to NOMAD um, with an African um, genetic ancestry as opposed to a European genetic ancestry. There's, there's no doubt that um, there would be significant benefit in that arena of increased diversity and access to um, research participation. Um, on the topic of, um, of utilization, so I think the second piece was sort of clinical implementation of testing um, in, in uh, sort of resource poor settings or, um, or things like that. I mean, it, the, the thing that we need to do is to continue on the trajectory that we're on. Um, so, uh, you know, just to, just to take a very, very um, kind of mundane logistical piece of this, the, the fact that we can do testing on buckle swabs has just dramatically increased the access to, to testing. I mean, it, there are patients that I care for uh, where just getting phlebotomy is a enough of a barrier that that it doesn't happen. So sample types, um, I think the the interface between health systems and payers and labs and clinicians, there's as as we've talked about a lot. There's a lot of work to be done there in terms of increasing access. Um, and I think that the benefit of testing per person tested is going to be higher in those populations that have less access to care. For the reason that I talked about earlier, it's, it's um, you know, those, those are the folks that don't have ac access to the experts who have the experience to make the clinical diagnosis. Um, and that broad testing can really act as a safety net. So I, I feel strongly about implementation in resource poor settings of, of broad testing. Uh, Dr. Kranz or Dr. Butler, would you like to comment on that as well? I would, I would agree with that. I think that what we need to do is diversify um, the providers as well. Um, and that goes back to the pipeline, probably back to middle school and high school education through undergraduate and medical school and residency. We, you know, I think genetics is complicated because we're small in numbers, but I think in this new era, everyone needs to be educated about genetics and genomics, but I think we really need to have providers um, that reflect the diversity of our population and internationally, and we're just um, not there yet with our small numbers, and I think um, we need to take an educational approach to go back along the pipeline and excite people about genetics and genomics and, um, and do everything we can to increased diversity amongst, um, amongst us, the providers.
It, it's certainly a multifactorial approach. And I think one that we've spoken about before on previous webinars as well is, is including sort of genetics-based education for physicians being currently trained, not necessarily in genetics, but in other specialties. And sort of how do you, how do you increase that, that understanding of, of genetic testing and genetics across, uh, across uh, uh, clinicians um, uh, coming through the, through the med school system? Um, perhaps one more question before we uh, sign off. Um, how do you foresee uh, uh, these whole genome sequencing projects uh, playing a role in therapeutic and drug discovery? Any, who would like to take that on? Um, I can take a stab at it, although Dr. Bodemer may be more appropriate, but I, you know, it is the first step towards that. So I, I kind of, you know, what we went through, if you look about the field of genetics over the last 20 or 30 years, even since I came into the field, there were just a handful of tests that we had. We didn't understand anything about disease. And we went through um, the last 20 years or so, mostly focused on gene discovery. And now we're transitioning more towards functional genomics and how do we, um, leverage um, what we know for both um, small molecule therapy as well as gene therapy. And I feel that um, the tools are now available um, to really, you know, capitalize on that and leverage um, therapeutics. And I think the landscape is, is definitely changing. And I think the future, when I talk to families, I'm very optimistic of what's going to happen over the next 10 and 20 years in terms of precision medicine and, med and medicines that target individual um, genes or changes within those genes. Um, again, for me, it's building a pipeline in education. I feel like for many of us who've been in this field for a long time, um, we were gene discoverers. You know, we had to spend 10, 20 years collecting cohorts and, and getting intimately involved with families and understanding the diagnosis. And when we finally found a gene, we were hooked and we're passionate about that diagnosis and passionate about helping those families and those kids. Our trainees nowadays, most of them come out of their training with a diagnosis named after them because they did an exome on a family, they found an interesting case, they put it in Gene Matcher, they found three or four other cases, they reported it, and they move on. Um, what we have to do is really engage um, biologists and our trainees, our residents and physicians um, to really dedicate themselves to these individual diagnoses and working beyond gene discovery towards, you know, improving the lives of these families through, you know, new therapeutics and management options. Dr. Bottomer, would you like the final word? Yeah, I, I feel that whole genome um, and, you know, evaluating its value for, for therapeutics should not be seen in isolation, I think whole genome really adds its value in concert with the other omics uh, technologies. I mean, transcriptome, for example, methylome, proteome. I think everything seen kind of in, in synergy, that's where I would feel uh, therapeutics will have the, or we will see the biggest impact on, on uh, therapeutic development. Mm -hmm. um, do you mind if I just add a, a couple oh, more thoughts? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, I think one piece is making sure that you're targeting the right population. So clinical trials that require a 
definitive genetic diagnosis of a specific disease as opposed to a clinical suspicion of a disease, that's a very different ascertainment and you get different results if you're targeting your intervention more appropriately. Um, I think the other thing is to think about um, uh, mutation-specific treatments at the level of the DNA, at the level of the RNA, at the level of the protein. Um, you know, we have examples of all of those, like splice-altering custom antisense oligonucleotides, which Dr. Bodemer and I have both uh, had cases in common in that scenario. Um, CFTR uh, therapies that are specific to a, to a genotype that operate at the level of the protein. Um, so all those things are really critical in terms of um, making our therapies really targeted and really um, uh, disease modifying at the level of the actual mechanism of disease. Mm. So it, it's certainly been very, very insightful discussion. We probably could have gone much deeper into many of the topics we covered today, um, but uh, you know, I, I want to thank you for joining us, uh, both you, the panelists, and, uh, and our audience. Once the webinar ends, you'll receive a feedback link in your browser. So please take a few minutes just to offer feedback on, on this uh, episode of the webinar. You'll also receive an email uh, after the webinar concludes uh, with a link to the Phenotype Speaker Series page where you can sign up and receive alerts on upcoming sessions or find out how you can stream past installments uh, on demand. The next webinar will be happening in November. Those details of that November webinar will be shared uh, and available in the next uh, week or so. Uh, and once again, a big thank you to uh, Drs. Bottomer, Kranz, and Larson for joining us today and for everyone else for tuning in. Uh, take care. <laughs>